Good morning, Seabreeze. It's good to see all of you today. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Glad you can join us. So Bill gave me an idea of something I could do with my goatee I hadn't thought of before. I don't know if I'm going to have the courage to dye it, but that, that was very good, Bill. We, uh, we are 11 days away from Christmas Eve. We're going to celebrate it here on Center Court. It's going to be a lot of fun. We picked the time to celebrate as 5 p.m., and the reason is it'll be dark by then. Now, those of you who are here, you're already seeing we're stringing up some of the lights. We're going to string up a lot more. It's going to make the environment here, I think, pretty amazing for Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock. And the reason we're doing it at night, not during the afternoon, is because it just doesn't feel like Christmas unless you can see lights twinkling in the dark. And that's because of the theme of Christmas, the theme we were looking at this month, which is a light in the darkness. This theme originates from the prophecy of the birth of Christ found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and this is what it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then four verses later in Isaiah 9, verse 6, we are told how this light will arrive. This is what it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The child, obviously, that the prophet is speaking of is Jesus Christ. He is the great light. We are the ones living in the land of the shadow of death. The reality of death is a, a great shadow that's thrown on every day that precedes our death. And these shadow lands that we live in have always been marked by things like confusion, uh, human frailty, isolation, injustice. But this year, the virus has added, I think, another layer of shadow to the normal darkness that is true of every year. So in the final month of this particular year, we are turning our attention to the light that dawned 2,000 years ago in the birth of a child, the birth of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we find these four names to be true. We find the answer to our confusion, the wonderful counselor. We find the answer to our weakness, the mighty God. We find the answer to our isolation, everlasting Father. And we find the answer to injustice, the Prince of Peace. Today we turn our attention to the second name that's given in that prophecy, mighty God. So the prophet Isaiah declares this to be a fact about this child. But it usually, for most people, starts as a question. Is Jesus really the mighty God. I mean, when he walked the earth, he looked like any other man. You could look at him and you would not see anything of divinity in him. Of course, if you followed him for very long, you would notice some very unusual things, not only in what he taught, but what he did. Unlike any other man, he did things like walking on water, and he fed thousands from only a few pieces of fish and bread. On a few occasions, he actually brought some people back from the dead. And then finally, he walked out of his own tomb and then ascended to heaven just weeks later in front of eyewitnesses. Now, in the past, I've spent a lot of time in different messages focusing on the mountain of evidence behind the fact that Jesus really is God in flesh. But today, I want to focus primarily on the implications of that fact. Not just the general implications, but the specific implications on this 
particular darker than normal year. Our guide is going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. These six verses describe the different aspects of what it means for Jesus to be the mighty God. And then we'll look at an implication for each one of these three aspects. So let's begin. The first aspect is this. If Jesus really is mighty God, then what that means is Jesus is the mighty creator. He is the mighty creator. This is how it begins in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is, and by the way, these are the two words we're going to find in front of all of these descriptions. So if you're, you're here and you've you got your pen out, you might want to just circle those two words as we go through these. He is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. So it starts out, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that sounds impossible. If you were asked to take a picture of God, even if you have a new iPhone, you can't take a picture of God. It wouldn't work because he's invisible. He, he is a spirit. But for a brief period of time, the invisible God took on visible form. He became visible. He took on a body and could be seen. But when he took on a body, what could not be seen was the fact that he remained God. You could not see his deity by just looking at him. But that did not diminish his deity at all. He was not less than God while he took on a body. That fact is made clear just a few verses later in verse 19. Let me mention this phrase because it speaks to this. In verse 19, we read this, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus Christ. All of his fullness. Now, the words all and fullness, well, they're redundant. They mean kind of the same thing, all and fullness. And they're redundant to make the point that Jesus was all God. He wasn't just part God. He wasn't just a diminished version of God for those 33 years that he took on a body. He was all God during all 33 of those years. And he was fully God. He was not half God. He was not three-quarters God. He was completely God while he took on that body. And as such, it goes on to say, he is also the firstborn over all creation. Now, we hear the word firstborn, and we think birth order. I'm the oldest in my family of the first of four. I'm the firstborn, so I tend to think of me as the oldest. But in this culture, the term firstborn meant much more than just birth order. It meant family leader, the one who was the leader of the future of the family. That was the firstborn. This is why what we just read says he was the firstborn over, not the firstborn in or the firstborn of. He is the firstborn over. This is speaking of his position of authority. So what is Jesus the leader over? What is he in authority over? Besides, he's the firstborn over all of creation. Why? Because he was the first one born in creation? No, that's not the point that's being made here. It goes on to say, the reason why he's the firstborn, the, the authority, the leader over all of creation, is for by him all things were created. He made everything. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers 
or authorities. So it was Jesus Christ who actually created everything. This is just an amazing thing to think of because what that meant is that as he was walking here on earth 2,000 years ago, he was the creator walking among his creation, looking like just one of his creation. But he was far more than that. So God the Father planned and initiated creation, but it was Jesus who carried out creation itself. Now, Jesus didn't just create the things that we can see. He created all the stuff that we can't see. As it says, visible and invisible. He created the entire spirit world. Now, this is all fascinating. It may be just a little hard for us to wrap our minds around, but what does that have to do with us now in this particular year of struggle? Well, notice it's an interesting list of the invisible things that Jesus created. Thrones powers, rulers, and authorities. There's much more invisible stuff he created than that, but these are the four that are mentioned. It turns out that the people in power, while they are visible, the thrones that they sit on rest on an invisible power created by God. Now, for me, and I think for many of you, the biggest source of frustration, anxiety, and turmoil this year have come from those who sit on the thrones of power. Now, I know it's been a, for any of us who lead, it's been a challenging year. The decisions have been very difficult. But sometimes the rules that we've been living under have made sense, and other times they were contradictory, or maybe they seem to be unfairly applied. And it's been really difficult and frustrating to do any kind of future planning. We've all had plans that have been canceled because someone in authority has issued a decree of some kind. And then you add this, you add to all of this, the turmoil of the political season, and it's been a challenging year as it relates to thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. So how can Jesus, the mighty creator, shine a light on this? Well, it says all things were created by him, and then here's the key phrase, and for him. You might want to circle that too. And for him. What this means is that Jesus doesn't just create stuff out of thin air for no purpose, for fun. Everything that's been created serves his purpose. It is for him. So here's the implication of Jesus being the mighty creator. Nothing is wasted. Nothing that happens is wasted. Now, since we were created in God's image, we are also creators. Now, we're not, we don't have the capacity that Jesus does. We don't have the power to create like God does. He creates out of nothing. We have to start with something. We need raw materials in order for us to create. Then we can assemble those raw materials into maybe something brand new that's never been invented before, or maybe something better, or maybe something fixed. That's how we create. Now, if you see me at Home Depot... It's because I have a project in mind. I am creating something. I am fixing something. I don't just go to Home Depot to breathe the air of the power tools. I, I go there for a purpose, to accomplish something. And so if you see me at Home Depot and you see stuff in my cart, that's an indication of the project that I'm working on. Everything in my cart has a purpose. It's there for a reason. 
It's the same when it comes to the God who creates out of nothing. If it exists, it has a purpose. If it's happening, it's because God has a reason for it to happen. We may not know its purpose. We may not, for the life of us, understand its purpose. But that's simply because we are not the mighty God. We're, we're people made in his image. So what this means is the visible rulers and the invisible thrones of power that they sit on were both created by Jesus, and they are existing and doing what they are doing because it serves his purpose. Now, as sub-creators, whenever we create, whenever we go onto a project, it always generates trash. I never go to Home Depot and accomplish a project without having to usually go back and then eventually have to discard some of the stuff that I didn't use, or at least the packaging that it came in. The average American generates 4.5 pounds of trash per day. That's part of what it means to be a sub-creator. We're not really that good at it. We waste a lot of stuff, more than we probably should. But God, on the other hand, doesn't throw things away. So if people turn bad, he doesn't just throw them onto the eternal garbage heap. If circumstances turn bad, he doesn't just immediately stop the flow of time and restart. No, if people have turned bad, if circumstances have turned bad, they're still part of his purpose and his eventual glory. And he has an amazing way of redeeming people and redeeming circumstances in a way that we could never have imagined. They are still part of his purpose. You know, many people are saying good riddance to 2020. I mean, this is the time of year when usually the year in review um, shows are seen on TV. I haven't seen one yet. Maybe there will be one. But all I'm hearing is, how many people are ready to be done with this year? And, yeah, everyone, we can't. Good riddance. Let's get done with this year. As if 2021 is it's all going to be over as soon as it turns January 1. You know, probably is going to linger on. But we're ready to throw this year on the trash heap because it's been such a hard year. But you see, if Jesus is the mighty creator, then he created 2020. And he created everything in it. And what that means, this is a good year. In fact, I will venture to say, I think this will go down as one of the greatest years over time in the purposes of God. I don't know exactly how. I've got some ideas, but I'm not the creator, so I'm a sub-creator. I just guess. Jesus, the mighty God, is at work in this year. All things were created by him, and here's the key phrase, and for him. It has a purpose. The second aspect, if Jesus is the mighty God, secondly, what that means is Jesus is the mighty sustainer. He holds it all together. He's the mighty sustainer. The next verse, Colossians 1:17. He is, so go ahead and circle those two words again if you're taking notes. He is before all things. So he created everything, but he existed before everything. And in him, all things hold together. Now, this is amazing stuff. He is before all things. In other words, Jesus existed before there was anything other than God himself. Before everything, it was God the Father, God the Son, who didn't take on the name Jesus until he took a body 2,000 years ago. 
and there was the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the three-in-one God. Now, what this is saying about Jesus in particular is that he is eternal. He is before all things. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has always been, and he will always be. Jesus doesn't have a past that he can't get back to or a future that he's uncertain about. We do, but not Jesus. Now, God existed before time, outside of time, and he is the one that chose. Jesus is the one that chose to create temporal reality. It's all we know. We know it as space and time. That's temporal reality. Space is the location where physical reality exists. Time is the context in which the world moves. Everything that exists moves forward. So everything that's created, that exists, does so at some place and at some time. So right now, we are at this address in Huntington Beach, California, and this is December 13th, 2020, at 9.42 in the morning. This is the time, this is the place where we exist. We can only operate at one time and in one place. We can't be two places at once. We're at one place on the timeline. We exist in space and time. And this timeline and everything in it was created by Jesus. He existed before it. He brought it into being. And then the next phrase says, and in him all things hold together. So having created space and time and then filling it with all of the many items of creation, Jesus didn't just leave and let it go on its own. He is actively involved moment by moment. In, in fact, God designed creation in such a way that it's completely dependent on him. If he walked away, creation would cease to exist. He's not just watching the creation timeline unfold. He is sustaining it, which means he's holding it together, as it says here. Now, what this means is that without the active presence of Jesus, all of creation, as I said, would fly apart. Now, when this verse was written almost 2,000 years ago, it appeared that the world was completely stable and didn't need any holding together. I mean, just with the naked eye, does any of this look like it's about to fall apart? It looks completely stable. But then, of course, the atom was discovered. And the nucleus of the atom is made up of what? Here's science class again. Protons and neutrons. Protons are positively charged. Neutrons are, you know what, they're neutral. That's why they're called neutrons. So what this means is the nucleus of an atom should not hold together. It should fly apart because of the electrical charges. But it doesn't. The big question for the longest time, and still to some degree is, is what holds it together? Well, physicists who were discovering this, they had to come up with a name for this obvious but mysterious and invisible force that seems to be holding everything together. And I love the name they came up with. They called it the strong force. Not that creative, but pretty accurate. The strong force. I mean, you can look this up, the strong force. But then as particle accelerators began smashing these protons into pieces, scientists discovered that the atom wasn't the smallest element. 
of matter, there was a subatomic world. It turns out that the proton is made up of things they call quarks flying around inside the proton at the speed of light. Now, something flying around at the speed of light, again, shouldn't be flying around together. It, it should just be flying off. So it even intensified the question, what is holding this together? So because they now knew the subatomic world, scientists needed to come up with another name because the strong force was for the atomic world. Now we're dealing with subatomic matters. So you know what scientists call the force that holds the nucleus together at a subatomic level? level? It's called gluons. Another really fascinating world, gluons. The glue that holds everything together. Now, if you take the Bible seriously, you don't need to make up a name like gluon or the strong force. We're given a name. The name is Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is all fascinating, and maybe your mind is hurting a little bit. It's hard to get your mind wrapped around these things. But again, what does all of this have to do? This is true. What does this have to do with this dark year? The implication is this. Nothing is hopeless. Nothing is hopeless. Hope is a function of the timeline. Only those who exist on a timeline can have a future to be hopeful about or to lose hope over. You have to be on the timeline for hope to even make sense as a category. And only those with the capacity to imagine a future can be hopeful or hopeless about that future. We were created in God's image, which means that while we can't step outside of the timeline that we're in, we can't step out of the space that we're in, we can think outside of time and space. We can regret our past. We can plan for and imagine a different and better future. We just don't have the power to make it conform to what we'd like it to be. And that fact leaves us vulnerable to having a less and less hopeful view on the future. But if Jesus exists outside of time, he knows what's going to happen. Because, well, he's already there. And since he is also involved in space and time, not just observing involved, but at a molecular, atomic, subatomic, holding it all together level, that means that nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is beyond hope. He is moving time toward its intended conclusion. If he just existed outside of time and was uninvolved, that would be hopeless. If he was involved in time but had no control because he was outside of time, that would be hopeless. Because he's outside of time and involved in time at a molecular level, nothing is hopeless. This past September, I turned 61. And I got it in my head that I wanted to mark that day by riding my bike 61 miles. So I decided to ride 61 miles on that day. Problem is, I didn't train. I allowed my 20-year-old brain to tell my 61-year-old body, hey, it's wheels and it's pedals, how hard can it be? And I was fine, honestly, because I do some riding. I just didn't really train for this. I was fine for about 40 miles. And then <laughs> it got ugly. I mean, I would, 
every, almost every tree I could find, I would pull over and I would drink water and I would eat food and I would try to replenish my body and I'd get back on the bike. Finally, I knew I was near the end of my ride, but I, I knew I still had a way to go and I reached the end of my endurance. And I was at a place that I'd never biked before. I mean, I knew where I was on GPS, but I had seen this. I was on the San Gabriel River Trail, and it was near the mountains. And I'd seen, I see where I was, and I'd parked my car somewhere around there, but I, I really didn't know where I was. And I was just out of gas. There were no trees. The sun was baking. And so I finally just put my bike, whoops, put my bike on the side of the road. And there was a bush that was about this big. And I literally just pushed my body up under that bush. And I got some leaves over me, and I just started pouring water on me, started drinking water. And I started assessing, okay, am I in trouble? I have my cell phone, but am I, am I in trouble enough to call my wife and tell her to come get me? And then I began to think, you know, I don't even know where she would park. I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere here. I don't know how she would find me. So I said, well, I'll just keep eating and drinking. Finally, I decided, okay, I can move again. So I got up, back on my bike, and I, I rode for about 50 yards. And I looked up, and over to my right, I noticed something that I recognized. It was my car. I was like 100 yards from my car <laughs> when I'd scooched under this bush. I mean, I was... I could have thrown a rock between where I was and where my air-conditioned, snack-filled car was. But I couldn't see it. It was up over the hill, a little bit around the bend. So I lost hope 50 yards short of my car because I couldn't see it. And I say that because we lose hope in life for the same reason. All we can see is what's surrounding us. We can't see over the next bend. We can't see around the next corner. We've never been exactly here before, but we follow the mighty God who sees over every rise and is actually sustaining us so that we might keep going until we arrive at the destination that will make my air-conditioned, snack-filled car look pathetic in comparison to the destination God has for us. So nothing is hopeless because the mighty God exists outside of time and is involved in your timeline and my timeline. That brings us to the third aspect. If Jesus is the mighty God, what that means also is that he is the mighty Savior. He's the mighty Savior. He's strong to save us and rescue us. Colossians 1, 18-20, this section ends this way. And he is, so circle that one, there's two he is's in this one. So he is the head of the body, the church, the next he is, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, not just creation, but everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This is the phrase we looked at earlier. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So it turns out God didn't just put inanimate objects like stars and planets and chemicals into this space-time continuum. He created life. Most of the life he created are temporary. 
In other words, they live for a while, and then they die. But God made one kind of life that was unique from all the other kind, humankind. He made us in his image. And what that means is there are certain aspects about who we are that reflect who God is. For example, like God, we can create. We just can't create out of nothing. Like God, we are moral with a strong sense of right and wrong. And like God, our life is eternal. Although we're living on this timeline, in the temporal realm, we have souls. The core of who we are that will outlive this timeline. Now the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, decided to step outside of God's moral design for them and for all of us. They disobeyed God. And that first sin had catastrophic effects in space and time. That first sin separated them and all of their descendants from God. And that was a big deal because since God is the sustainer of all creation, separation from him is deadly. And since we are at the top of the created order, what we do affects all of creation. So sin brought death into the world but God didn't abandon us. Jesus, the one who created and sustains us, took on a human body and entered the timeline 2,000 years ago in a place called Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life for 33 years on that timeline, and then he died a horrible death on a cross. Why? Well, as it says here, to be the beginning, not of creation, but of salvation be the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now remember, firstborn means authority, family leader. So how is Jesus the leader among the dead? It's because he's the only one to defeat death. That puts him over death. So he's the only one that can give us life out of death. He's the only one that can lead us to live a life that matters beyond our own death and that goes beyond our own death. How? As it says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His death is offered as a substitute for the death that we deserve. Now, it's the only way we can be reconciled to God. We can't say enough sorry enough times. We can't do enough things. This is the only way for us to be reconciled. It's the only offer of peace between God and ourselves that's on the table. It's his only offer. We take it or we leave it. So what does this have to do with this year? The implication is this. No one is unloved. If Jesus is the mighty Savior and he did all of this, no one's unloved. The word that stands out to me most in this particular part of the passage is the word pleased. You might circle it. It says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus Christ. The question that I have is, how does the word pleased fit into the same sentence as blood shed on the cross? This isn't the plan of God to reluctantly decide, well, I guess I have to take on a body because it's the only way to defeat death is I have to take on a body and die and rise again. It wasn't a reluctant decision. It says he was pleased to do this. 
You see what that means? No one goes to this kind of sacrificial and torturous effort to save a relationship with someone that doesn't matter. For God to pay that price, to make this peace available to all of humanity, that can only mean one thing. No one is unloved. No one doesn't matter. Everyone is loved. Everyone's important. God's love for us is a fact that is demonstrated by these links that Jesus went to to reconcile us to him. But sadly, in my experience, most people don't feel loved by God. Usually it's because they expect God to love them through the circumstances of their life. And if their life is hard, then it must mean God doesn't love them, when in fact this is where God demonstrates his love. But the other reason most people don't feel loved is because, it, well, honestly, it's impossible to feel love at a distance. You can't experience someone's love for you at a distance. This is why Jesus didn't just make peace through his blood. He left a form, a physical form of his body here on earth. It's called the church. That's what that previous he is about. And he is the head of the body, the church. What does that have to do with his salvation? Well, if you want to know and experience someone's love for you, it's best to be in their presence. Also, if you want to know and experience God's love for you, it's, it's going to occur best in the context of the church. That's where God's love for us is experienced. So, nothing is wasted this year because Jesus is the creator. He uses everything for his purpose, even 2020. Nothing is hopeless because Jesus is a sustainer. He's at work in the details of life. And no one is unloved because Jesus is the mighty Savior. He went to incredible lengths to save us. So in this year, it is clear that we really need Jesus, the mighty God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so grateful that you took on a body and you allowed yourself to be humbled in such a way that you actually were born like the rest of us were born. Even though you were God in that little baby's body. Now there's so much about this that is really hard for us to understand. You've made it clear and you've given evidence, but it's really amazing to think about. So we thank you for this year, as hard as it's been. We thank you for how it's already changed us, how it's reordered our priorities, how it's focused us on the things that really matter and on how important people are. And we thank you for how you are already bringing people to yourself and allowing your salvation to bring peace between more and more people and yourself. We pray that you would help us to be a part of that effort in the remaining parts of this year and in the year to come. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.